Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 4, verses 4 through 30 and verse 39. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming where you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. This is the word of God. For the past several months, we've been looking at passages in Scripture from the Old Testament and the New to walk through like a survey of Scripture. And uh, it helps us to understand a bit more about things that we learned when we were children when we studied these passages in Sunday school to be able to add a bit more depth or understanding to what we had originally learned. That's why the series is called The Bible We Thought We Knew. And here we read a very interesting conversation between Jesus and this woman. And it teaches us important truths about who Jesus is, what he came to do. But I'm going to give you a little bit of context. In chapter 3, chapter before this, you have Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an educated, wealthy, respected male who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was a ruler. And that meant he was in. He was included. And he came to Jesus because he had questions. But in this passage... You have an uneducated, poor, outcast woman who had no rights in society. And yet Jesus goes to her. Why? The woman, this woman wants to know, how can you quench my spiritual thirst? In other words, how do I experience new life? Give me this living water. How do I experience new life in a way that's going to shape me? And Jesus says this in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, if you knew 
the gift of God. On one hand, he's saying it's a gift. You have to get it. You have to receive it. On the other hand, you need to know. If you knew, you need to understand. Know what? Understand what? In this passage, Jesus is giving us the key to renewal, the key to life. Living water, after all, what's water? Water is going to quench you. Water is going to renew you. There are three things we're going to learn today. It's one of my favorite passages. Uh, one, uh, and I, tr- I tried to frame it in a different way because I've preached on this before, but we're going to stick to my original outline on this. The gospel gives us a new agenda. The gospel gives us a new life. The gospel gives us a new love. Agenda, life, love. First, the gospel gives us a new agenda. In verse 9, this woman, she says, what are you talking to me for? I'm a Jew. You're, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. What are you talking to me for? Verse 27, the disciples, they, they're later surprised because Jesus, they see Jesus speaking with a woman. He sits down and he's talking to this woman. In ancient times, rabbis, they sat while they taught. Unlike today's progressive education, everybody else is seated and teachers walking around. Rabbis sat and everybody gathered around. But one thing's for sure, rabbis never taught women. But here's Jesus. He's teaching a woman. The disciples, they lived with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. To be a disciple means to literally walk behind Jesus, to be able to walk behind your rabbi and follow so closely to what the discipler is saying that the dust of their feet would gather onto the clothing of his disciples. And so disciples were known to be the people of the dust. But they never taught women. They were never alone. They were never seen alone with women. This woman, he's alone with her. And on top of that, she comes alone. He's alone with her. It's a Samaritan woman. Why was she alone? Water, water back then, as today, water is needed for everything. You need water to cook. You need water to clean. You need water to do laundry. You need water to bathe. You need water to drink. Right? Those days, irrigation systems were poor, and so you had to walk to fresh springs to get water, and the best time to go is to leave in the morning because it was the coolest part of the day. This is the ancient Middle East, very, very hot, very humid. And so women would always gather together and walk together at the coolest part of the day, the first hour. This woman waits till the sixth hour. That's about noon. She waits till the hottest part of the day when nobody else would be around. She wanted to go alone. She wanted to go alone. It was a long trip. No one's going to travel with her. She didn't want to travel with anybody. Why? And it's because we learn that she was, uh, she was married to many men, and the man that she was with was, wasn't even her husband. Right? So this woman's an adulterer. She's immoral. She's a social outcast. She's a moral outcast. She's outside of every circle. She's outside of every ring. So she's outside of the race ring, the gender ring, the societal ring, the moral ring. Religious people look down on her. But Jesus says, Jesus specifically comes to seek her and says, you are in. I came for you. Nicodemus, the religious, wealthy, respectable man, came to Jesus, saw Jesus out. Jesus came for, you, for her. In verse 4, we learn that he was traveling from Gal- to Galilee, essentially, from Judea to Galilee. Now, I don't have a map here for you, but if you look at Judea and Galilee, it's kind of a straight line down, but what Jesus does is he goes out of his way to Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. That's what it said. And so we see him passing geographical, political boundaries. But it's Samaria. And Samaritans, they were known as half-breeds. They were kind of an impure race. So he's crossing racial boundaries. That's important to know in our society today, to know that Jesus is crossing racial boundaries. Uh, In verse 6 to 7, he sits down and he's teaching a woman. That's gender boundaries. We see him teaching a woman that's societal boundaries that he's crossing. He's alone with this woman. In verse 7, it's a Samaritan woman, right? So we talked about the fact that it's, it's uh, ethnic boundaries, but it's also cultural boundaries, religious boundaries. Jews in verse 9, why are you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans don't associate with each other. John specifically writes that into the text to let us know, to let us not forget that there was a deep-rooted hatred of one another. Religious wars, today wars are being fought over religion, ideologies, no different back then. 
he's crossing religious boundaries. Look at all the boundaries that Jesus is crossing just to meet with this woman. In verse 18, he says, the fact is you've had five husbands. This is a rabbi in ancient religious culture of Israel. A rabbi is talking to a woman, teaching her, discipling her, and says, you've had five husbands. You are an adulterer. That's what he's saying. He's crossing moral boundaries. He's being seen. It's not like when the disciples came, he's like, okay, let's pretend we don't know each other. He chooses to be seen with this woman. He's crossing moral boundaries. Look at the grace of Jesus. Look at the compassion of Jesus. Look at the inclusivity of Jesus. On one hand, Christianity is the most exclusive faith systems in the world. Maybe the most exclusive. Why? Because we say there's only one way to gain access to God. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way up that mountain, and that's through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was his words, John chapter 14, verse 6, right? But on the other hand, who can get in? Who gets in? You could be like Nicodemus, educated, wealthy, respectable, a male in society. You could be like the Samaritan woman, poor, outcast out of every circle, low, adulterer, immoral, religiously out of the circle. You see that? Anybody can get in. A man like Nicodemus can get in. A woman like the Samaritan woman can get in. They can sit at the table and dine together. Only in the gospel will you see that. Only in the gospel. So on one hand, Christianity could be the most exclusive faith, and yet at the same time, it is the most inclusive faith system in the world. On one hand, Jesus is more conservative than our conservatives today. He says, there's only one way to heaven. You must follow the law. In fact, he gives him a greater law. I don't just want you to commit, not commit murder. I want you to never hate anyone. You can't get more conservative than that. On the other hand, he's seen speaking with talking to progressively with a woman who is outcast of every religious circle in her day. You see that? And so Jesus is more liberal than even our liberals today. No education, no status needed, no pedigree is going to stop him from talking to you. To Nicodemus, he says, you are Israel's teacher. That's what he says in John chapter 3. You are Israel's teacher. You are respected. You are smart. You're educated, and yet you don't get it. That's what he says to Nicodemus. To this woman, he says, I want to give you the gift. I want to give you the gift. You see that? You're in. It's an amazing thing, remarkable what is this passage teaching us, at least from the start, just, by, just at a glance? That new life is not based on your achievements. It's not based on your merit. It's not based even on your morality. Even, it's not even based on how good you are. The woman's not praying to Jesus. The woman doesn't seek God. In fact, the woman's running away from God. She's running away from God, and she's running away from other people. The first thing that sin does in our lives is what? It alienates us from one another because it alienates us from God. So this woman is running. Hottest time of the day. She wants to be away from people. She, the last thing that she wants is to come face-to-face with God. She's not praying to God, looking for God, seeking God, thankful for God, confessing her sins to God. She's doing none of these things right? Jesus goes out and seeks her. In fact, she's running away from God, if anything, and yet Jesus says, I came to offer you, to give you living water. That's what he says. Does she say in response, yes, I've been searching for you all my life. Is that what she says? No, that's not what she says. She says, listen, living water, I just want running water. Give it to me so I can go. That's what, he, that's what she says, pretty much, right? There's no intent to engage uh, in her sins, to talk about her sins, and yet Jesus continues to talk to her. What does this tell you? Jesus is saying that there is no ethnic, political, geographic, cultural, gender, social, or societal, religious, or moral boundary that I am not willing to cross to be with you. 
Verse 4, he had to go, it says. He had to go there. He went out of his way, crossed every boundary to be with this woman. When you see the boundaries that Jesus Christ crossed for you, crossed for us, you will be able to cross boundaries for others. I know a lot of people who tell me, you know, all my life I worked really, really hard to get in because I wasn't in before. I worked really, really hard, maybe socially, to build up a reputation or or, uh, educationally to build up a certain pedigree. I worked really, really hard just to get into these circles. There's no way I'm going to sacrifice my reputation for that, not for other people. And so their eyes are only on people that can help them get further. Their eyes are only on people to help them get more popular, to get them in more. You know that we we tend to live uh, with an air of superiority because deep inside there's a deep-rooted inferiority in our lives. We're not known. We're not truly loved. We don't believe that. And that's why we cover ourselves with those things. That's why we're constantly seeking to get in. And so we, we look for people who are wealthy. We look for people who are the movers and shakers of any community. We look for the beautiful people. We look for the leaders. We do that at church. We do that socially. We do that at work. We do that at home in our families. The gospel gives you a new agenda right off the bat. Second point, the gospel gives you a new life. The reason why the gospel gives us a new agenda is because it gives us a new life. So I'm going to give you a summary of what's going on because I know that this passage, as you read it, you've probably, if you've been in the church, you've had to have read this passage multiple times. And I doubt that there's anybody in this room who looked at this passage and said, every part of this passage makes complete sense to me. I don't know anybody who said that. But if you know, if you're part of the ancient culture, and if you were there with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, this passage makes absolute sense. So it's not a very choppy conversation. I just need to walk you through a little bit of it. And we're going to look at the highlights here. Verses 4 to 7, Jesus is going from, uh, to Galilee. He goes out of his way to Samaria. And it's at the sixth hour. And at that time, the Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Right? She comes to his well. She wants to go to his spring to get water. And this conversation from verses 7 to 26 seems choppy, but absolutely makes sense to, to each other as they're talking. And so what Jesus is saying is, uh, I've, I'm going to give you something. I can give you something that's more than just forgiveness. That's really what he's saying. I can give you something more than, than, than just a fresh start. I am going to give you, I'm offering you a new life. Because water means newness. Water means cleansing. It's a whole shifting And in the Old Testament, whenever you see springs and wells and water, it's kind of synonymous with the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so it's always synonymous with new life. Now, we don't live in this climate like the Middle East. We don't live in this very, very dry desert, uh, humid and desert-like context. So we've likely never seen anybody suffering from extreme dehydration. But the reality is our bodies are made up of water. We're, we have a lot, we're made up of 70, 75% water. And so our bodies are constantly craving water. There's this tremendous need. We're constantly crying out for water. And when you deprive your body of water, your, your body starts to dehydrate. You start out with headaches, dry throat. Eventually that dry throat and the headaches turns into searing internal heat. They document this as an internal burning that takes place. It's like your innards are on fire. There's tremendous amount of pain, an inner torment, a burning inside, and then you die. A lot of suffering. Jesus is saying to this woman, I have something that your soul needs even more than water. Because the Bible says if God is not at the center of your soul and you place anything else at the center of your soul, Anything else in front of you. It could be a relationship, your pursuit of beauty, wealth, material possessions, anything. Then your soul, it's like drinking seawater because you're thirsty. You only, you think it's going to quench you because it looks clean and blue and clear. And then you drink it and you're going to get even thirstier. Your soul is going to thirst. And your soul is going to, the internal heat, the intensity of that heat, it'll start to mount. Right now you're young and you're beautiful and you're able 
You don't experience all that brokenness today. You may be starting to experience some of that, but it's not going to be full-blown until the heat, not only it becomes a part of you, the intensity of the burning will burst you into hell. That's what that is. Friends, we don't get thrown into hell. We choose it. The Bible says if God is not the center of your soul, there will be a thirsting, and your soul is going to corrode until you die. If you've ever read... Uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, uh, written by Oscar Wilde, um, without going into the book. Dorian Gray, he f- buys into this philosophy of living a very hedonistic, licentious lifestyle because he's all about beauty. He's all about the senses. So it's sensual fulfillment. And so through a series of events, he makes this deal so that all of his, his, his uh, age and ugliness gets put onto this picture. Meanwhile, he gets to stay young and beautiful and live out his life in a self-indulgent way. And over time, as you stare at the picture, the picture of Dorian Gray gets uglier and older and just decrepit until at the end, he dies. That's really what happens. You see the cruelty and the wickedness of the heart. It just all comes out. What Oscar Wilde is saying is, when you pour into yourself like that, when you pour into yourself, right now you're young and you're beautiful, and you won't see that up front, but eventually Boom! One day, your soul will corrode. To it, there'll be a tipping point. And then it's, the, it's like the point of no return, like the picture of Dorian Gray. That's what he says. If you say it another way, if you place your hopes of a good life in anything other than Jesus, if you place it in any other beauty as opposed to Jesus' beauty, any other accomplishment other than the work of Jesus done for you, any other richness or wealth apart from being found rich in him, any other relationship other than having intimacy with him, then you will thirst and you will never be satisfied and your soul will corrode and the, the burning will begin and continue into a fire until you burst into flames. That's pretty much what happens. That's what's gonna happen. Jesus says, but... If you drink of him, if you drink of him, verse 10, in you will become a spring of life. That is a remarkable statement. Look, if your hopes are not in Jesus, you will place tremendous emotional and psychological and spiritual and even physical well, uh, well-being, all, just the weight of your well-being into something else. And when you put your emotions and psyche and soul and spirit into something like that, when you pour into something like that, we call that worship. That's the definition of worship. Worship is to take all of your faculties and concentrate into something. So if you're pouring that into your work, that's what you worship. If you're pouring that into your kids, that's what you're worshiping. If you're pouring that into your spouse or your relationship, that's what you're worshiping. If you're pouring that into just the life of the church, and that's all you've got without recognizing the beauty of Christ, without recognizing the love of Christ for you, you will not heal, but you are worshiping religion. That's what you're doing. You're worshiping church. That's what you're doing. When all your faculties uphold one thing as supreme worth in your life, all your energy, your soul, that is worship. And what Jesus says is this, the greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. What he's saying is I want you to concentrate that in me. Pour into me. When you place it into something else, there's this burden. You know why there's a burden? Because your, your soul, there's a DNA imprint that started from the days of Adam that even though there's a brokenness in his sin, and that sin, we're born with that sin, there's a, almost like a spiritual DNA imprint that tells us this can't be it. There's got to be more. And so when you place all your hopes of significance into a job, your soul kind of knows it's not going to be enough. That's where the dissatisfaction begins. But it places just tremendous amount of pressure on you and on that job to be the source of your fulfillment. You know how, that's, you know how shaky that is? You're building your house on something that is very shaky. You see that? And all your hopes of purpose, if it's placed on a job, very shaky. All your hopes of intimacy and love and acceptance, if you pour that into one person, your spouse, someone that you fall in love with, all your hopes for intimacy and acceptance and approval, then you're placing a tremendous amount of weight and pressure on that person. And a tremendous amount of, of weight and pressure on you to fulfill and to uphold and to keep that. That's worship. You see that? 
You place all your, your hopes of significance and meaning into your children, you, especially in our society today. That's why we have the quote-unquote millennial experience today. It's because they've just been poured into. They don't know life apart from that. And that's why they feel entitled. And corporate America is struggling to try to figure out how to deal with this society and this culture. That's us right now. But if you do that to your children, just pour into them like that, you're putting tremendous amount of weight and burden on those children. You will lose your children. You will destroy your children. Do you know that today, teenage suicide today, is twice the, uh, there are twice the number of teenage suicides today than 10 years ago. Did you know that? Generationally, we have a problem because we're just pouring in in an idolatrous way. We are worshiping our children. Do you understand that? It will ruin your relationships with them, and it will ruin them in the process. When you lose your job, you lose yourself. If you've poured into your job as your source of meaning. If your job doesn't satisfy you or disappoint you, you lose yourself. The anger, the frustration, the anxiety. If you pour into your education because this is what's going to get you there, when it was never meant to get you there, right, way beyond the balloon, not there. You will put a tremendous amount of pressure on yourself, and when you fail in a particular way, you lose yourself. That's where the anger and also the jealousy, because other people are succeeding, the envy, the covetousness, you see that? And then you were going to work and work to be able to earn, to get to the next level. That never ends. It never ends. Your heart will go bad. There will be a burning, an inner burning, a torment, and it will stay with you. And you're going to kill and ruin relationships around you, your marriage, your children. You see that? Because your heart's going to go bad. It's why we're constantly trying to control people, manipulate our relationships, fight. That's why we do that. Our heart's gone bad. In verse 15, this woman, she wants this water. Jesus says, you want the water? Go call your husband. Why does he say that? It's not a good way to make friends. Jesus says, your heart's gone bad. You see, I want to give it to you. Your heart's gone bad. So he wants to get to the heart. And he says, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're currently with is not even your husband. You've had six men in your life, and your trajectory is not getting better. It's actually getting worse. The man you're with is not even, you're not even married to him anymore. What do you actually want? What are you looking for? You're on a downslope with six men. The number six is what? Incompletion, unrest, imperfection. It's man's number, they say. It means unrest, imperfection, a generation of cycling and searching and searching and searching and failure and failure and failure. failure. That's what it's about. You're restless. You're unsatisfied. This woman comes at the sixth hour and has been through six men. She is tired and she is restless. And Jesus is asking her, aren't you tired? Because I can give you lasting hope, a living justice, an eternal fulfillment, and undying beauty. That's what I can give you. If you pour into yourself, you're always going to be thirsty. But he says, but those who pour into me, those who pour into Jesus, a spring of water, a well will well up inside you and you will overflow. Because your relationships will not be about what you need and what you want and what you should get because you already have it in Jesus. You already have the acceptance. You already have the love. You already have the kindness of God in your life. It's certain. It's sure. And when you do that, then what do you need? What do you need? You start to give. No matter what happens to you, your life, there will be a joy that will bubble through. And that joy will continue and continue and continue in the midst of suffering and trial and brokenness and guilt and sin and shame and these cycles. No matter what you do, that joy will continue until one day the joy will come in full and burst you forth into glorious, into glory. Do you understand that? How do you know that Jesus is coming close to you the way he's coming close to this woman? How do you know that he's coming near? Because this woman, her heart's gone bad. So it's not like a lot of us think, well, I need to be right for God to meet with me. But that's not what's happening here. This woman, her heart is gone, completely bad. She just wants the love of men. That's what she thinks is going to cure her, you see? And she's pursuing this at great lengths. 
Jesus says, Jesus comes to her and says, your pursuits have brought you to even more thirsting. Six men, six hour, no joy. You've been robbed of your joy. You're thirsting for this. You're tired. You're alone. So what does that mean? One of the first criteria, one of the first prerequisites in some ways to recognize that Jesus is coming to you is you're alone. Today we hate being alone. We're in such a connected society and a connected culture. We hate the idea of being alone. But to be, to be alone for us today is to be cursed. But if you think about this woman, if she was never alone, this would never have happened. This conversation, this thought, she never would have met Jesus if she wasn't alone. That's one, of the, that's one of the ways you know that Jesus is coming close to you. So if, you've, if you're, you feel isolated because you've messed up in life, for this woman, her screw-ups got her alone. When you're successful, people are always around you. When you're successful and you're wealthy and you're beautiful, people are always around you. They want to be near you, right? Lots of noise in your life, lots of frivolous noise in your life. When you screw up, when things crash, you're alone. In fact, the one, this is a reality we're all going to have to face. No matter who you're with, no matter who you know, death is something you need to deal with by yourself. No one's going to go with you in that way. You've got to deal with it alone. Jesus says, I will use your screw-ups to bring a fountain of joy into your life. I'm going to work through your screw-ups. I'm going to work through all the mistakes you've made. I'm going to work through all the brokenness that has happened as a result of your screw-ups. I'm going to work through all of your suffering. I'm going to work through all of your persecution. You feel persecuted by people? I'm going to work through that too. You have trials, anxieties, and fears because of all these things that might happen? I'm going to work through that too. You have, you've done bad things, made bad choices, made bad friends. It's hard to get out. I'm going to work through that too. I'm going to work through all these things, but you've got to meet me alone. That's one of the prerequisites. Jesus is waiting for you alone. Number two, what's going on here? There's a dialogue, conversation, almost kind of like an argument in some ways. You can call it that, but it's really a dialogue. This woman and Jesus, they're talking. They're going back and forth. She's kind of like incredulous, like, I don't believe you. And he's kind of like talking, and they're talking. They're going back and forth. He's got all these questions. He's got questions. When you're alone, one of the things that being alone does is it forces you to think. You start to think about meaning. What's all this for? And it's, it's not that abstract. You start to ask yourself very tangible questions in your aloneness about what you're actually doing in life. That's what you do. So you're inquiring. And it's not like nobody hears you, because even if you're alone. You're alone, but God hears. And so there's this kind of reasoning and dialogue that starts. You know, maybe I should go back to church. Maybe I should pick up the Bible. And some people start to go back to it again. Maybe I've abandoned certain things. I need to come back to it. There are passages. The reason why we raise our children in the church and, you know, we're trying to revamp right now our entire children's ministry. We have a, a flood of children that we're anticipating over the course of time. One of the reasons why we do that is because even if our children walk away, if you implant scripture into their lives, later on when they're alone, you know what happens? It's those words that come back. How many of you remembered certain passages of scripture when you were the most distant from God? So you start to inquire. You start to reason. And what Jesus is doing, think about what Jesus is doing. Is he angry at her at any point in time? You've had five husbands, and the man you're with is not your Is that how he talks to her? Is that the tone that you read in this text? No. He's counseling her. He's talking to her, dialoguing with her. She's like, Jesus, I'm totally confused. I thought we are talking about, like, faucet water. And he says, no, 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 we're talking about worship. What? <laughs> you know, they talk, they're having this conversation, and he kind of brings her to a different level. And you know this. Because in the beginning of the passage, he says, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, right? In fact, I'm going to point you to the actual verses. He says, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. That's verse 9. Then in verse 11, he says, uh, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep, right? Verse 15, sir, give me this water, right? And then verse 19, I can see that you are a prophet. 
And in verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he's going to explain everything to us, right? Verse 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You see, even in the progression of the dialogue, there's an intimacy that's developing there. You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. We're supposed to hate each other. Could this be Jesus? Could this be the Christ? You start alone. It goes into a dialogue. That dialogue takes you to many different levels of thought and questions. If you haven't experienced that, you may not be a believer. You may not be a Christian. It, it's, not, it's a prerequisite in a sense that if you haven't asked yourself the deep-rooted questions about what you truly worship and who Jesus really is and how it speaks into that, you may not be a Christian. I'll say that. But what happens is when that becomes personal to you, when you start to ask yourself, could he be the Christ? That's when the gospel becomes real. You go from these abstract theological discussions. I, I hate that stuff. You know, uh, my, my staff knows and then my leadership team knows. Um, you know, I, I look at that as like the way, you know, I love Apple computers. Um, I love the Mac but that doesn't make me a, a computer programmer. I'm not a developer. I don't sit there and like, operating system, I don't do that. That's not my thing, you know? Like, <laughs> like you know, I, I don't do that, right? Um, I love uh, all Apple products, right? Uh, but I don't sit there and like, oh, let me get into the code and see how this operating system is different than this. I don't do that, right? Um, and, uh, but I'm gonna rest on that for all the work that we do, right? You have to rest on it. You have to, I mean, completely different operating systems from other computers. You ha- you're going to have to choose and, uh, and you say, hey, this is what I trust, right? I'm going to rest on that. In the same way, um, you know, you notice that Jesus is taking this woman to different planes of thinking, right? And, but it isn't until it becomes personal and applicable in your life. It starts to shape your life. If it doesn't shape your life and it just stays in that kind of abstract theology, right, you may not be a Christian. You may not be a believer. You understand? And so here Jesus is answering and counseling, and then it becomes personal. He gets at the deepest pain. He gets at the deepest brokenness, the deepest sin, the stuff that she's been hiding all her life, the stuff that she's been ignoring about herself, her deepest shame, her deepest inadequacies. And if he hasn't done that with you and addressed your insecurities and your inadequacies and your shame and your pain and your brokenness and your sin and the stuff that you've been hiding, if you haven't been dialoguing with Jesus on these things, you may not be a Christian. You may not be. Jesus says, this woman says, I'm not spiritually thirsty. I'm physically thirsty. See, I, I worship. We worship over there on that mountain. I, I don't know what you, where you, you guys say it's over there. We say it's over here. Which one's right? Jesus says, you're thirsty. You are thirsty. You are dry and you are dying. And you want to talk to me about the, that's not the way he says it, but that's pretty much what he's saying, right? I'm here to bring that, to make that real in your life. You worship, you worship, you want acceptance and approval. You worship men. That's the problem. You may go to worship there, but a time is coming when it's not about here or there. It's in the heart. He gets at the heart of the woman. He says, that's why you need men, because you're so internally dry. You think that love and acceptance and approval from other people, that's what's going to get you there. That's what's going to give you significance and meaning and purpose. But you're going to all the wrong places. You're going to all the wrong wells. And you're leaning on men, and you're leaning on sex, and it's corroding your soul, and that's why there's this intense internal burning in your life. You see, it's not so much as you need to build or create a new faith. We all have faith. The problem is we put our faith in other things, the wrong things. And that's why this talk about the water slowly begins to talk about the temple and about worship because they're really talking about the same thing because that which is going to quench your thirst is what you worship. That which you think is going to quench your soul is what you worship. 
That is the center of your worship. That's what we call the temple in the ancient times. The temple was the central place where people went to gain access to God. You think by getting approval from men and approval from other people, that if that is what you're going for, if that is what's driving you, that is what you worship. That is what you worship in the heart, and that is what's killing you. That's what's making you dry. That's what's making you thirsty. You need a new center. That's also what motivates you. That's what's driving you to do all these things. Five men, one down, two down, three down, four, five divorces. The man that you're with is not even your husband. And so as your soul is corroding and imploding, you're constantly looking for the next one because you think that's what's going to heal you. Jesus says you need a new center. You think the temple's there, and you're wrong. He says the temple's in Jerusalem. You need to reorient your temple. You need to reorient the center of your motivations. You need to reorient. It's not that you need faith. You have faith. It's in the wrong temple. You need to reorient the center of your motivations. The woman says, where is the temple? Because the temple is that ancient center. Usually, a lot of times, it was placed in the center of the city. Today, the center of the city is what? Commerce, the finance district, right? Rittenhouse Square, the financial center, right, of any large city, Wall Street. But in the old days, in the ancient times, the center of the city was its temple. And so you erected the largest peak of any city was its temple. And, G- and this woman saying, where is the right temple? Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, no, 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 you don't need a temple anymore. He never says that in this text, right? The woman says, I have a temple. Jesus says, it's the wrong temple. Because does that temple give you the access that you're looking for, the access that you need, the love that you need? Your center is off and your life is spinning out of control. I got to wrap this up, so I'm going to go kind of quickly through this. The next two verses are just remarkable. Verse 25 to 26, right? The woman says this, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And then Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Now, that's an amazing passage. I'm going to kind of unpack this for you. The woman's saying, oh, you're talking about, okay, I thought you were just talking about a place. You're talking about spiritual reality. Yes, I'm waiting for that. I want that. I'm longing for that. This is, my life is messed up. One day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to heal me. He's going to explain everything to me. He's going to make my life make sense. So she knows, even in her brokenness, God has given her enough grace to be able to open her heart to know that that longing is a spiritual longing. And she says, one day the Messiah is going to come, explain all of this to me. And Jesus responds with ego me. That's a Greek phrase for I am that I am. I am. That's a remarkable phrase. You know why? Because in the book of Exodus, when Moses is talking to God, Yahweh, and God says, I want you to go to the Pharaoh in Egypt They've enslaved my people for 400 years. I want you to tell them to let my people go so that they may worship me. Moses says, well, my people, they're going to wonder, who sent me? What do I tell them? And God says, you tell them, I am sent you. You tell them, I am that I am sent you. That phrase is the exact phrase translated in the Greek here, ego me." One day the Messiah is going to come, and when he comes, he will explain everything to me. Jesus says, I am. I am. What he's really saying is that I am the center of all of your desires. I am the temple. That I am the center of your worship. I need to be. You should be thirsting after me. I'm the spiritual reality that you should be craving. The reason why you're sleeping with other men, the reason why you're going off into all these other pursuits, you're still looking for that one thing that's going to give you the approval that only I can give you because it is ultimate. It stops with me. And when you have my acceptance and my approval, then you have a sense of worth. When you have my validation, then you have a sense of worth. You're thirsting for love. You're thirsting for acceptance, real love, true love. It can only be found in me. I am. Verse 28 and 29, the woman runs back. Then leaving her water jar, right, she runs back into the very people. The whole reason why she went there at the sixth hour was what? So she can get away from these people. She runs back to the town. Why? New life. Gives her a new agenda. Her thirst is quenched. Search is over. Shame is gone. Guilt is gone. 
The text says that she left her water jar behind. That's how they carried their water jars like this. The very thing that put a sag in her shoulders, the fatigue, the weariness, the heat, the thirsting, she leaves it behind, weightless. You see that? There's a new source of worth in her life, a new life. She's been cured. Now, the cure is not, uh, uh, the cure is love. It's not anything less than love, right? It's just that she's found the ultimate love. And that love is available to anyone and everyone, and it's given to us for free. Jesus offers that to the woman. She offers that to us. How do you get in? How do you get that? And so I, so I can wrap up. Here we go. This is how you get it. This is the key. This is the last point. This is the key. Because in order for us to have a new life that gives us a new agenda, we have to have this love. The whole passage takes place in the premise of Jacob's well, verse 6. Jacob's well was there. Later on, verse 12, the woman says to Jesus, uh, Jacob, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well, right? Where did Jacob meet his wife? He met Rachel, beautiful Rachel, at a well. Rachel was beautiful, ethnically pure. She was a pure Jew, right? Not like the Samaritan woman. She was a pure Jew. Um, Rachel was beautiful, pure Jew, so ethnically clean, culturally clean, culturally acceptable, but she was also sexually clean. She was pure. And so Jacob fell in love. She pursued Rachel, met her at the well. She was acceptable. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Jacob's father, Isaac, where did he meet his wife? Isaac met Rebekah at a well. And so Rebecca was beautiful, ethnically pure, culturally pure, acceptable, sexually moral, sexually pure. And so she was clean in every way. She was acceptable. Centuries later, by Jacob's well, you have Jesus Christ. We say Jesus Christ is the greater Jacob. Jesus Christ is the greater Isaac. Why? Because Jesus Christ intentionally goes to Samaria and meets this woman at a well. But this woman is not ethnically pure. This woman is not culturally pure. This woman is not morally pure. This woman is not sexually acceptable. This woman is outcast and out of every circle, every social circle, every religious circle. Whereas Rachel and Rebecca completely acceptable, this woman is the opposite. Every other American fairy tale begins with a pure maiden, a damsel in distress that is pure, who deserves a Prince Charming. But the thing is, if you live out an American fairy tale, that's what you think the gospel is. You will, fa- you will never meet your Prince Charming because you are neither fair nor pure nor clean in any way. The gospel is the anti fairy tale. Because Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, the ultimate prince, who will undo all the brokenness in the world, seeks after. The low, the uneducated, the poor, the outcast, broken, sexually impure person. That's what makes him greater than Jacob and the greater Isaac. Do you see that? Religion is to say we need to be like Rachel. We need to be like Rebecca. We need to be pure. The gospel says you're not pure. That's why Jesus has to come for you, you see. That's why Jesus has to come for you. And that's why he is a greater king. And that's why he's a more loving king and more compassionate king. Because what he does is he takes the ultimate king and the ultimate righteousness, the ultimate one, the ultimate pure and holy one, takes us in as his bride. That's his church, his bride. And he makes us pure. That's what makes him greater. On the cross, how does he do this? On the cross... Jesus Christ says, I am thirsty. He's thirsting on the cross. When you look at the cross, Jesus is twisting and working and groaning, and he's thirsty. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I'm alone, and I'm crying out, and there's no dialogue. 
So not only do I not get a dialogue, even though I'm alone and I'm being punished, and the penalty of our, of our sins is being poured out on Jesus. And he says, I am burning up inside. I am thirsting because there's no God. The center of my motivations, the center of my joy, the center of my faith and all my hopes, gone completely, departed from me, forsaken me, and I have nothing and I'm alone. And, I'm just, I, and because I've been forsaken, I'm drying up. And so I'm thirsting for God. I'm longing for God. The center of my worship has departed from me and I'm burning up inside. Separated from God, I'm in hell. The ultimate hell. Suffering thousands of hells for us. Completely forsaken, why? So that we could be accepted. Completely abandoned, why? So that we could be loved. Completely disowned, the father has disowned his son, why? So that we could be adopted as his children. Completely separated from God, why? So we could be his bride. Completely alone. Why? So that we would never be alone. Jesus scaled every height. He scaled the heights of Calvary, descended to the depths of hell for us. And if you see that and trust that, that will be the end of your thirst. That will be the end of your thirsting. Your job won't do that for you. Your girlfriend won't do that for you. Your spouse will not do that for you. Your children can't do that for you. You know why? Because all of them are broken too. No matter how much they sacrifice for you, they have needs, they have demands, they're broken. But here's Jesus, the holy and perfect lover who transacts all of his righteousness on us and takes away all of our impurity. That's the goodness of Christ. Do you trust him? Do you believe him? Because there's your worth on the cross. There's your validation if you see the beauty of Jesus and all that he sacrificed for us, there's the love and the acceptance that you're looking for, that you need. There's the validation you've been looking for all your life. Only then can you break free of the idols that are gripping us. Only then can you say, my job is just a job. Only then can you say, this money, as much of a blessing as it is, it's just money. Only then can you, can you look at your wife or your husband the way they were intended to be looked at. Only then can you look at your children and have wisdom in how to raise them. If you've broken free of those idols because the love and the acceptance that you're looking for through them has been found in Jesus. This woman, she runs back to the very people that she avoided because of her brokenness. And through her brokenness, she says, come see a man. Here's my brokenness. Come see a man who showed me everything I've ever done. There's my brokenness. And she has become the first missionary for the gospel. Pretty remarkable, right? Thousands of years later, this uneducated, poor, immoral woman, we're still talking about her. Amazing passage. Has Jesus become your seventh man? Seven is the number for perfection. Seven is the number for completeness. Rest. Or are you still looking for that seventh man in your life? May not be a man, but in your job. Are you married to your job? Are you married to your career? Is that what's going to give you life and fulfillment, new life? Is that going to quench your thirst? You're still looking for a seventh man in your life like this woman then. Look at the trajectory of that. Or has Jesus become the seventh man, your first love? Will you make him your first love today? Let's respond in saying, you are, you sought after me, and so I love you. Let's pray.